first speaker after lunch is Professor Joseph Ibrahim. He's going to join us via Zoom. Uh, Joseph is a medical specialist working in geriatrics with over 30 years clinical experience uh, with older people. He's also head of the Health, Law and Ageing Research Unit in the Department of Forensic Medicine at Monash University. He's been an ex expert witness in criminal and coroner's court cases and perhaps most pertinently today, he has been a witness at the Royal Commission into the Aged Care Quality and Safety Royal Commission. Anne Samuelson is taking your questions, so get them coming. Put your hands together for Professor Joseph Ibrahim. So thank you very much for the introduction. So when I originally proposed the talk, I had gone for alliteration. So I'd call this COVID-19 and aged care a pandemic of virtue vicissitude, which I've had trouble pronouncing, and vanity. And so I really just want to pause and reflect on those different aspects of what's happened during the pandemic and the fact it's still going on um, and wreaking havoc with our lives <clears throat> almost three years on. So um, the Department of Health uh, federally released the figures again, as they do regularly now on the number of cases of COVID-19 in residential care. There's approximately 10,000 cases active now with 1,000 outbreaks in facilities. And so there's only 2,700 facilities in Australia. So over one third of facilities have an outbreak. Overall, in since 2020, there's been 2,670 outbreaks in residential care facilities. So that's almost every single facility in our country has had an outbreak. And there's been 77,000 residents um, have COVID. Um, and of those, we've had 3,500, uh, sorry, I'm just trying to get the, the data on the number of deaths and there's been 3,394 deaths um, of residents in aged care. Now I'm just going to give you the, the dictionary definition of the um, my alliteration so and I want you to have a think about who this would apply to in your experience over the last two and a half years. Who's demonstrated virtue during this pandemic? You know, who's demonstrated behaviour that's got high moral standards? Would have been the vicissitudes, um, which is a change of circumstance or fortune, typically that's unwelcome or unpleasant. Who, who or what has led to those changes? And vanity, which is excessive pride in or admiration of one's own appearance um, or achievements. And I think both of these apply um, throughout uh, the pandemic. And again, I'd ask you just to maybe jot down one person um, for each of those three. Um, you know, who's had high moral standing, who has changed our fortune for the worse, and who's been vain in, in their attempt to work with us. The main thread of my uh, talk today is uh, workers imagined versus workers done. And I think that um, I wanted to highlight this as the core understanding, because I, I could have gone through a whole range of reasons as to why we've failed to measure up to what we're capable of during the pandemic as a country, um, and how 
and what those various factors have been. They've been looked at at some depth, both in terms of the Royal Commission, um, a number of other COVID inquiries into uh, the outbreaks. And as you well know, in New South Wales, the New March house inquest is currently ongoing. So when I talk about work as imagined and work as done, and I think talking to nurses, you will understand absolutely what I mean in the what's written down in policy, what's on organisational charts, what people put on their flow diagrams, um, what's sent down from above um, and when it hits the wards or hits the clinic or hits us in residential aged care, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense about how the real world works. And I think the greatest failure with this pandemic across the country and across the world is a failure to understand how work is done. And what we had were people in senior positions uh, and senior roles in decision-making that were uh, living in or, or working from an imaginary um, place. Uh, and that imaginary place has every shift is filled, every nurse is well and able to do the work that um, that nurse has been allocated. If you need a doctor, they're around and are kind, thoughtful and responsive should you ask them any questions, um, that the equipment you need is there, that space for bins to be put are there, that the rubbish will be taken out on time, that no one will call in sick. So there, there's been a real mismatch here between how I think the senior leaders in the country and advisors thought versus um, what was real. And I just want to talk about eight different relationships um, and, I and then probably just summarise. The first relationship I want to talk about, which is well known prior to the pandemic, is aged care's relationship with the free market. Um, and I know that might sound a bit twee, but um, essentially back in 1997, when the current Act was written, in that Act were the um, was really the downfall of aged care and making it a free market, which saw a reduction in staffing, a removal of uh, ratios or limits around who could do what work. It saw a substantial loss of registered nurses from aged care, saw a, a, a concomitant increase in personal care workers, um, and this whole shift uh, as well as work becoming um, more casualised and having to work at multiple places to earn um, a livable income. And so those workplace conditions and those changes to the workforce were brought about by the 1997 Act. And this was known at government levels and was known um, by the people strategising about how we deal with the pandemic. But for some reason, they assumed or, or wanted to pretend that we still had the same number of registered nurses in aged care homes or that the um, AINs and the personal care workers um, had the equivalent scope of practice and capability and not, not recognising that the, the own plans from the department and legislation had really um, created havoc with that. So we had 
fewer staff, fewer staff with, uh, and so fewer staff, staff with less skills and staff with less certainty about job security, less representation and less ability to speak up. So that was a precondition from 1997. We then had the Royal Commission, which was well underway before the pandemic, which highlighted the, the problems once again and made particular note of um, multiple shifts and, and sometimes even 10% of homes not being able to fully um, staff for everyday business. And so we knew from the Royal Commission that the aged care sector was not equipped to manage day-to-day -day business. Um, but for some reason, the Department of Health, the, the, yeah, the federal government, um, the regulator all seemed to think that the aged care sector could um, step up and also manage a pandemic um, despite these underlying foundational or structural issues. The regulator was then um, put in as the helper, the person to lead us through the COVID pandemic. But those working in aged care know that there's a vexed relationship with the regulator. Is the regulator policing um, the work or is the regulator your friend and educator? And it has this um, dual role, neither of them performing well, as pointed out by the Royal Commission, but it created uncertainty and doubt um, in the minds of the staff and the providers about what you should do, um, how you're able to follow the rules and whether you would be sanctioned or not, um, depending on um, how they were going to interpret um, the standards the other point is the regulator also knew prior to the pandemic that a substantial number of homes were having trouble with governance, infection control, escalation of clinical care. This was already known to them. They knew the places that had those problems and they knew this was not a one-off, but another structural issue. And so if you're a provider and you're listening to the regulator and you did what they told you to, you were well underprepared for the pandemic when it hit because the regulator's plans were um, pretty thin, if you want to call it a plan, and essentially put the responsibility for managing an outbreak onto the approved provider and the individual home. The next relationship, which wasn't well understood, is the relationship between aged care and hospitals. And everyone wants to um, pretend that we all get on nice and we're thoughtful and kind to each other. And when someone at an aged care facility calls the emergency department of a hospital, they say, uh, I'm glad you called. Um, I'm here to help. Just let me know any problems, send them to me um, and we will look after your resident. Um, no problem. We know that's not true. We know there are multiple schemes around either having residential in-reach or outreach programs to try and manage residents in the nursing home. And, and again, you need to really lose that term nursing because there's not enough nurses in there to call it that in an aged care facility. And that 
the conversation and the power differential between hospital staff and the aged care staff is profound. And it's very hard to get an acute hospital to respond quickly or in a way that provides much comfort in an aged care um, home. Again, there will be exceptions and, and I know people will have um, a, a colleagues that they rely on and trust and that everything I've said is uh, pretty much stereotyping. And, and I agree that, it, that it's not across the whole sector, but I'm stereotyping because these are structural issues. The other, the next relationship is between aged care and GPs. The pandemic um, plan assumes that the GP was going to be at your beck and call and that they would arrive and assist with the management. And we already knew that GPs were scarce, that they didn't like visiting, that they'd usually visit um, either in their lunch hours or after clinic had finished, and that GPs were going to be swamped with work from the community once COVID broke out. So we know that uh, in terms of workers done, but workers imagined if you're sitting up in, in your offices in Canberra is, yes, we have GPs and uh, yes, we've got um, payment for them to go visit residents. It'll work out. The next relationship is understanding but the, the relationship between the staff and the provider. And this is where uh, I think a, a lot is not clear around the culture of individual homes really is dependent on one or two key people the the culture within an organization varies within their own home it doesn't go across the whole um facility uh, doesn't go across the whole ownership group and that the cultures across aged care vary widely from groups that are very supportive um good places to work, deliver a high standard of care through to those that are poor. And then the middle group, which is the large group, which is struggling. And how much faith do you have in your managers? And how much faith do you have in your, the organisation if you raised a concern whether it would be addressed or whether you'd be moved on? And so I think that the cultural aspects and that relationship between staff and management wasn't well thought through. And nor was it thought through about staff knowing how they behave and respond in an emergency. And that if you delegated more control to the senior nursing staff in the aged care facility, you'd have a far better outcome around rostering, managing workforce shortages and talking the talk about uh, reducing the number of places people would work at. There's only two more relationships I want to look at and then I'm done with the aid. The next one is the relationship between the aged care facility and the community. And again, there's a considerable variation between how much support there is from the community, both in terms of uh, incorporating the home in, uh, being socially inclusive, and whether you've got a good volunteer network or whether there's respect for the work that's done or whether the aged care facility is ranked almost lowest in the order of priority of need. And we've seen how aged care residents were prioritised well below um, almost every other citizen in our country during the pandemic. 
The final one where I think things got completely missed was the relationship between the aged care staff, resident and family. And particularly here with the um, you know, limited visitation, the, the lockdowns or lockouts, um, again, there was no substantive engagement with people that were involved on the ground that were thinking up novel solutions that were seeing the direct impact to um, mitigate, moderate the plans that were being developed um, essentially out of Canberra. So I think that what I've tried to show in those sort of eight relationships, the people go in with a set view about how the world should work. But as you and I know, that that's not that's not real. Work is work is done is what you do or we do to get the job done today based on who we've got at work, what resources we've been given, how sick the patients or residents we've got with us are. We might try to follow the the, the policy, but the policies are written as if we're fully staffed with no one sick um, and everyone behaving as they're supposed to. And that's just um, not true. Many of these things, if not all of them, I contend were known before the pandemic. Also known before the pandemic was that we knew how to use research evidence and we knew how to deal with uncertainty but we didn't apply that very well. And the two things I, well, not two things, there's multiple things I, I want to harp on about, but I think for today, the major thing that was missing is there were no nurses involved in the pandemic planning for aged care. There were no nurses that actually worked in aged care that were represented on any of those groups that were making the decisions. Um, and I'm still unaware now because it's very hard to get information as to how many senior working nurses are involved at a state or regional level in advising what's happening on the ground and what needs to happen so that we've got proper field intelligence so that we can prepare better for what's happening. Professor Abraham, um, so, it, uh, just Julie, the MC here, we've got 10 minutes left and we'd love to go to questions, but is there a quick thing you wanted to say before I open up questions? I've got Anne moving into position now. Uh, no, I, no, no, I won't give the government a serve today. <laughs> um, ladies and gentlemen, a, a round of applause, please. And... Uh, just before I take the first question uh, from Anne Samuelson, Manager of Professional Services, you may notice that she's taller than she was before. I, I, I want to acknowledge that the Inter International Convention Centre has provided a large box. So Miss McCrossan's box has made us taller. But Anne, over to you, the first question, please. Okay, so for the first question, um, why did uh, some aged care providers have more issues with COVID than others? Was it good luck, good management? What was it? Um, it that's a really good question, and it's um, we're starting to unravel it. There's a uh, 
there's an element of good luck. There's an element of good management. There's an element of what's been happening around your region. There's the element of how much preparation you had, what your organisational culture was like beforehand, how proactive um, you are, whether you've got people that have been authorised or empowered to make decisions as problems arise, rather than sitting back and waiting. Um, we looked at um, a couple of variables. One of them was whether you had a, a CEO that was a clinical, had clinical experience. And there was, um, yeah, it's hard to prove statistically, but the impression that we had was that if you had a CEO with clinical experience, you're more likely to be better able to manage um, a, an outbreak. But th there's so many other intangibles about the physical building, how many residents you might have with dementia, um, how soon you know. What, what was clear was there was a lack of preparation and rehearsal and that the homes that um, were able to get extra support early, um, I think, would have also helped. But that then depends on your relationship with your local hospitals, your GPs and, and what else is there, which I think all comes back to, do you have a good workplace culture and do you have clinical leaders that know how the, the health system works? Fabulously complex answer, and yet it had a sort of feeling of being absolutely accurate and fair. Did you feel that, Anne? You don't have to comment. Can I have another question? You certainly can. Um, we know that things were absolutely dire in aged care, and you're amongst friends, so speak freely. Um, why do you think it took so long for the federal government, not the Albanese government, so long to deal with the vulnerable elderly in the residential aged care facilities? Um, I don't have any proof. Um, I, I personally, I believe, and it's speculation, is that the original plans didn't have anything to do or any consideration about the aged care sector. And what, what few reports come out is how many staff did they have allocated to work on aged care plans? Why did they choose a regulator to lead a public health initiative? Why was there not a single geriatrician, let alone um, a senior nurse, um, in gerontics on any of the planning groups. The Prime Minister didn't put together a expert group until August, and that was after claiming it wasn't needed. I, I think, personally, I think, uh, yeah, aged care was written off as we're not going to be able to do anything. Um, let's worry about the hospitals and let's worry about getting ventilators for young people. Um Professor Ibrahim, we've got other questions, but if I could just slip one question into you. This is a whole room of people, and we've got uh, over 150 people watching online as well, who are talking about speaking up and making change. So what is the action going forward that an association like this can contribute to uh, so that older people and those who love them can feel safer going forward in aged care? What do we need to be fighting for? Um. In a sense, we've got to be fighting for ourselves as we all are going to get older. So the, the, the issue with aged care is either if you're lucky, you'll get old. Um, if not, then there's only one other alternative. Um, 
you will also, if you want to remain young at heart, you might still have older people that you're responsible for. There's impacts with within and without. I had a call from a, a reporter yesterday wanting to push the agenda further, but because um, the community is sort of now immunised against the poor care in aged care, I think it's it's really difficult to be a whistleblower and. If you go back through the history of changes in healthcare, um, you go back to the you know um, the the hospital scandals. It's almost always been a nurse that stood up to be the whistleblower. Very rarely has it been a doctor, which is interesting um, in and of itself. I think it's really important that you've got support around you, and that it's really hard if you need to speak up. And yeah, you know, the, the reason. It's, I don't know why it's hard to tell the truth, but people don't like the truth. They like their imagined world. And so when you confront people and say, this policy is lovely, but do you know, we haven't been able to fill this position for 10 years now. Um, what am I supposed to do? Well, solve the problem yourself. I think there's a disconnect between executive and management. I think that to be a whistleblower, you need support around you and you need people to reinforce um, that your view is reasonable. And I think one of the earlier speakers talked about taking your guide from people outside of your area. The, the community knows what they expect from doctors and nurses. Doctors will make excuses for the bad behaviour of other doctors. Yeah, I've seen that my whole career. It's changing now, but when you're in a small group, it's really hard to break free and you rely on others to get you through the day. So it's really hard to speak up if there's someone in your team or someone in your workplace that isn't doing the right thing. Um, I think if you understand that and then seek support, because it's really hard to live your life, um, either not speaking up is difficult and speaking up is just as if not more difficult. But you've got to remember it's the, it is the right thing to do. Um, but but in the end, it ends up being a, pretty much a, a personal choice, which is pretty sad. I'll come in there now, but thank you for your reflections on, on, on a complex question. We've got two minutes left, but let's have one more question, please, Anne. Okay, so um, in Australia, as we know, residential aged care facilities are by and large for profit facilities, um, and which means in many cases, um, the care is all, um, comes above pro, uh, pro, a lower priority. And community don't necessarily understand this federal um, and state divide. How do we educate the community to understand these different funding models and, uh, and how care is prioritised? Uh, that that I, I can honestly say is I don't have the answer to that. My, my efforts, I think, have generally fallen flat in trying to educate people on the nuances. People want a big picture. And I think what you want to do is paint that um, no matter who you are, the care that you get wherever you are in Australia in aged care should be the same. And it should be at a standard that a country that's in the top 10 of high income countries with the level of knowledge and resources that we've got, it ought to be bloody good care um, for everyone. The, I, I think that the 
the artificial it's an artificial divide between the privates and not-for-profits and the state-owned ones is that there are some variations but all of them pretty much behave in a similar way in reducing the number of professional staff having low paid low qualified staff not putting the training in that's needed that that's across the board it's not just the privates you could say the privates are at least honest in that you know they've got a profit motive but from everything that i've seen the places that are really good are i would move to a small country town that had a community owned and operated home are the ones that really show i, I think the the love and care for the person as if it's their own and I think of all the places I've been to, it's those small homes that do really well. Well, isn't it lucky most of us can't afford to buy a house in Sydney? <laughs> that was a very, very dry joke. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, we'd really like to thank Professor Joseph Ibrahim. Thank you. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging and recognise that this land was never ceded. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.